Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. This is Jan Roos. Welcome back to another episode of the Case Fuel podcast. Today, we have a great guest in Elizabeth David Dombrowski. So she's the founder of Good Counsel Services that does a lot of work in the non-for-profit and for-profit social impact organization world. She's also the executive director of the Karen Orr Foundation, which works with the Jerusalem Center for Blind Children. But she's got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, about this world of non-for-profit, which could be very, very interesting for clients, even if they're not trying to get into the non-for-profit world. It's a really great opportunity for people to potentially get some cool partnerships and also make an impact at the same time. Thanks again for taking the time, Elizabeth. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. You're doing some awesome stuff today, but obviously you had to start somewhere. Do you mind telling us a little bit about how you went ahead and got to where you are today? I had a experience when I was in law school. I went to law school at night and I worked full-time during the day. Um, About halfway through my degree, I decided to take a leadership position for the organization I now lead, Karen Orr, the Jerusalem Center for Blind Children with Multiple Disabilities. When I came into the position as the executive director, I realized that there were legal issues that there wasn't somebody on staff to handle, that we had been reliant on board members who were attorneys to give advice, or we would look to people who could give some pro bono services. And I started quickly to realize that that is not an ideal situation for a growing not-for-profit, partly because there is a specialized area of law about not-for-profit law, and there are different needs and focus points that need to happen when you're leading an organization. And it's not a best practice to be having a board member give the organization legal advice or to have someone on a pro bono situation do it if they're not actively involved on a regular basis with the organization. So even before I became an attorney, I saw that there was a need for services to be given to not-for-profits. I thought only about New York initially, and since then I have expanded my scope. But when I finished law school, I was committed to taking this idea and bringing it further. And I was fortunate enough to be involved in two different fellowship programs. One was through an organization called Present Tense, which was dedicated to taking social impact and social entrepreneurship ideas that were occurring in the Jewish community and expand them. And I loved that opportunity because I was able to test in real time my ideas. And it was through that initial testing period that I opened up my scope to not just be limited to not for profit. And I thought about how social impact organizations that are doing for-profit ventures also had needs. And that sometimes it's better for a person with a great idea on how to improve the world to actually become a for-profit company rather than go the not-for-profit route. And I realized that it's not an all-or-nothing situation where if you do for-profit, you can't also be doing social good. After I was able to complete that fellowship, I was applied for and invited into a second fellowship. It was with the Center for Social Innovation, and I was one of the Agents of Change members. And that year program allowed me to go for I had a lot of resources made available to me. I made incredible connections in the Center for Social Innovation. I ultimately became a founding 40 member of their Women's Lab and then became a full member of the organization and have a relationship with them that continues to today. It's a place that I go to to share workshops, to meet new clients, to be a member of the community in general, and also to help out with legal issues that that come up for the organization itself as well as for its members. I also had the opportunity to 
work with a uh, organization that you may be familiar with, many of your uh, listeners may know, but Wix, Wix, W-I-X, is a company that helps with websites. So they actually host websites and you can build your website on that platform. They were offering a residency here in New York City and you could use their co-working space. So I was fortunate to have a marketing intern at that time who was able to use that space pretty regularly, meet new connections for us, as an organization and also be able to learn about how we can use more social media and the internet to better look for and find leads for our own work. We organized as a not-for-profit corporation here in the state of New York and we were granted our tax exempt, federal tax exempt status. So we incorporated back in December of 2016 and today we are serving regularly about 25 clients and we run a series of cohort programs as well. So that's awesome. And if you think about the amount of time that you guys have been at that, getting to the scale that you're at is, is definitely impressive. And I want to kind of pick into a couple things that you mentioned. One of the things is it seems like a lot of doors were open to you by virtue of working with these non-for-profits. And one of the things we talk about this show from time to time is you know getting these win-win situations with partners. And a lot of the times just providing the value, it's way more easy to make an introduction with somebody that's done a lot for you in a place that is a lot of need for these things, which it certainly seems like is the case with these not-for-profits and the for-profit social impact organizations. I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but you know, it seems like there's kind of a gap in the market right now between these pro bono and, and the board members that, that are organizing. So could you take us a little bit into what it looks like in your standard non-for-profit or social impact organizations in terms of the needs that they have and you know how somebody might be able to get into these and, and service them properly? I think that it's definitely not a one solution fits all. So if you don't mind, I'll talk about a few different kind of subgroups I see in terms of their needs. With the needs that I see someone who is at the ideation stage has, it's really making a decision on what legal entity they should exist as, whether they want to form a limited liability company, whether they want to become a benefit corporation, whether or not for profit corporation is the best route, or if they choose to become a traditional corporation. And some, I, I really don't recommend it, at least for very long, but some do want to remain unincorporated as they're really just testing out their idea. That's not, of course, a long-term solution for many of them, but it is when it's really just an idea, something they want to wait on a little bit as they do more research. So I think that at the ideation stage and in those very early stages, the needs of the organization, the legal needs are what form of incorporation should we go down in terms of a path? And then also, what liabilities do we, from the very beginning, need to look out and protect against? So if you're going to be working with children, for example, there are specific things that need to be done. If those children are going to have access to information online, there are additional requirements. And looking at whether or not an organization is going to be dealing with the licensing, preparation, and sale of food is another area. And I think those issue spotting is critical for someone leading either a not-for-profit organization or a for-profit social enterprise to deal with. And I think any business at its early stage um, needs to think about these things. And those are very vital. I, I can't tell you how many clients came to us because they had bad advice. And I felt so bad for them because they had spent so much time and so much money going in a direction that wasn't best for them because they didn't have that good counsel to use the pun at the beginning of their journey as an organization to think hard about where they wanted to go. And, you know, people get advice at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, when they're just going out with friends, you know, oh, you're a lawyer, what do you think about this? And that's a horrible way to get advice. And unfortunately, although there's a lot of terrific intent, I think, in a lot of the pro bono services, when I 
as the leader of a not-for-profit organization for my day job was looking before I was an attorney for services. My problem was that the pro bono services, either they didn't have necessarily specialization that I needed in not-for-profit law, or they weren't available in real time because it's just the nature of something is that if somebody is working at a big firm and a big case or issue comes up and there's something that's vital for them, they can't walk away from that in order to take care of your needs, which are just as important for you, but because you're not paying them, it's not because they have any ill intent, but they have to go where the law firm they're working for wants them to be and not necessarily is that with you and your needs. I know there are also wonderful programs that are being run by universities yeah. and law. We work with many of those students. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's now a requirement here in New York State before being admitted to practice here. You have to do 50 hours of pro bono. What I do is I work with a lot of students from Brooklyn Law School. I have several that are working with me right now and we've done several in the past and I have several coming on over the summer. And what I do with them is I have a particular project that they work on. I'm still the main attorney interfacing with the clients in real time, but they're able to help us keep our costs down low, do incredible work that ultimately services the clients, but it doesn't replace that general lawyer-client relationship because they are only there for 50 hours. And in some cases, to train them might take as much time as actually doing the work. So the way that we found a great way to balance it is to find their area of interest and give them a project related to it and some real experience dealing with the clients, but it doesn't ever replace the work that we and our staff are doing for our clients. Yeah. So you just brought up something super interesting, Elizabeth, because I'm sure some people are thinking about this. Hey, look, I'm not a business attorney. I'm not looking to serve a non-for-profits long-term. I don't really have the time to do this. But you know, what I thought was pretty attractive about what you just said is that a lot of the times, you know, there's obviously a lot of work that you're doing, but you know, you're able to leverage this a lot with law school relationships, which is something that everyone who has a JD has. A lot of listeners of this podcast uh, might not be interested in the non-for-profit space as a practice, but mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunities you want to think of perhaps trust in the state's attorney that might want to work with elder support organizations or a family law attorney that might want to be working for uh, disadvantaged women or something like that. You obviously started off with a lot of connections from your fellowships, but if you get to start from scratch, how would you go about finding these organizations and, and getting in front of the people that might need the help? They could be good relationships moving forward. I think that's very important to think about those connections and how you can leverage them to open up more doors. One thing before I answer that part of your question, I I do want to just add that the ideation phase at the beginning is one area of law, but the organizations as they mature then need later issues. So if you have background in employment law, if you do intellectual property, if you do a lot of insurance review and work, if you do contracts, contracts are vital for -for not-for-profits. So you don't need to be a specialist in not-for-profit law, but if you're a dang good uh, contract attorney, there's tons of work for you in the not-for-profit and social impact sector as those organizations grow. And what I find is useful is that if you start with an organization at the ideation phase, as they grow, their ability, first of all, to pay you increases and the relationship and their needs um, strengthens in terms of you, they trust you, you are their go-to person and the needs that they have are broader and you're able to do more work for them. So sometimes it makes sense to think about an organization early and to build that relationship. And as they grow, so does your legal relationship with them. To answer your question about leveraging and getting those, if I had to start now, where would I go to? 
I think that those two examples that you gave were excellent. I think that if you think about what it is that you as an attorney are doing and that you do well and how to make those connections. So let me just go back to your earlier example of that estate attorney. I think if you're an estate attorney, you definitely want to join an organization. I'm actually, I don't know if my membership is active. It should be. But um, the Planned Giving and Professionals of Greater New York is a organization that gathers both those that are fundraising and looking for people who are making estate gifts and those estate attorneys together in one place. They do a lot of continuing legal education and they bring in a lot of speakers. But it's a great place to network. So if you join an organization like that, If you're an estate attorney running a private practice and you can talk to someone running the estate planning, the philanthropic end at a larger charity, that's a great relationship to have because they may have issues a lot of times even a planned giving department in a medium-sized not-for-profit will outsource some of their estate work, especially if, the, if they have to go into litigation. So if there's an estate where a charitable gift was made, but there's a question about the validity of the will or there's argument over how things are valued, very rarely even does a large not-for-profit want to get into having their in-house attorneys handle that. So if you're an estate attorney doing litigation practice, those relationships, joining an organization like the Plans Giving Group of Greater New York is an excellent resource, but also looking to places that gather not-for-profit. So I mentioned a couple of those organizations at the top of our conversation, but I'll just repeat them because I think they're great resources. So the Center for Social Innovation is one here in Manhattan. I think their listserv service is something ridiculously high, like 10,000 organizations or something. I could be wrong on that number, but whenever I go to it to look for something, I'm always getting great answers very quickly. So there's a lot of the right people sort of on that listserv, and it's where I've been able to get a lot of clients. I'm a member of the organization and I can make myself available to them. So I would recommend to someone if your specialization is say your intellectual property, there are artist organizations that gather another one that I know of, they're a client of ours and they do great work, but the artist co-op also here in Manhattan, they are a co-working space, get dedicated to artists both um, mostly performance artists, but I think writers and probably directors as well. And they have a lot of legal needs, especially if one of their shows is going to be picked up by a large producer. They definitely need an attorney to help them. So building a relationship with an organization like the Artist Co-op would be excellent. I recently came across another organization, and I'll be visiting with them tomorrow, but they're called Soho Place, and they're another co-working space, and they had asked me to come in to do a talk for their community, and that's something that I think is very good as an idea for how you can expand your base and, and look to be in new places is find where many of your potential clients may be gathering and offer to do a talk there. I mean, that's been something that we found really successful at Good Counsel. We have a terrific relationship with the Center for Social Innovation, and we provide workshops for them. And we've become their go-to person when they're making referrals or people are looking. They know who we are and what we're about because they've had a chance to meet with some of our speakers and the people we bring in and and get to see in a real face-to-face interaction with us. So I think that's another thing to do, to look at these conveners. And not always are they exclusively not-for-profit. I know that Wix is a for-profit company, and although they were offering free space, they were still a great place to go to. I haven't worked directly with them. I've used their space before, but I'm not sure how they work with bringing in different specialists but you're getting access to a lot of people at one time. And I find that to be a really useful way to have people self-select because not everybody is going to be a match. And sometimes just giving your presentation 
you know, the way you share information. You're able to sort of showcase what it is you do and how you communicate with people, and that potential client may find that a match. And if you're doing that in front of 10 people, maybe two of them are going to self-select to be a match for you. Rather than spending time on calls with all 10, going through the same information. So having it be able to be done in live environments where you're face-to-face, but with a larger group, but not too large. You you may notice I said 10. I don't think it's really useful to get yourself in front of 100 people at a time. It may be great for your public speaking practice, but I hadn't seen that those that always results in having the, the referrals and the actual clients retain you. That makes sense. I think having a group, maybe 10, at most 25, I think 25 may even be stretching it. Well, one of the things I'm taking from this thing is that like there's a huge potential for scale here. And like you said, you know, if you can do one presentation to 10 or 25 people instead of pounding the pavement and, and getting on consultations with those same 25 people and just letting the ones come to you, it's obviously a great use of time and, and able to, to get your, your reach out there. And this is something that's probably extremely important for either the growing practice with a few partners or the solo practice who's looking to grow because, you know, these guys are strapped for time all the time. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, you you mentioned a lot of really great organizations. Now, if somebody was trying to start this from scratch, how are you finding these organizations in the first place? And how do you sort of evaluate which ones are the priority of their reach? In terms of finding them, in my case, I don't know how helpful I can be to your audience on this because mine was really word of mouth. Maybe this will be helpful. If I just take a few steps backwards in my journey and and kind of look at how it happened, it probably wasn't, there was probably more plan involved without me recognizing it. So I was asked to join an alumni group at Brooklyn Law School where I went to night school. And so they had me come and speak at a networking event about networking. As a fundraiser, networking is a really big part of what we do. And that was my background. So I spoke to some of the students that were graduating and some students that were in their early years. And there were other alum that were there. It was at that event that I exchanged business cards with a woman who was at the time working. I don't think she had been yet admitted to practice in New York. She was a foreign trained attorney. And she was working for a larger charity. And I thought, oh, that might be something I myself would be interested in working with one organization as essentially general counsel. She wasn't yet admitted to be counsel, but she was doing work that once she was admitted would naturally flow into her representing, at least at the associate level, if not later, as a full general counsel. And I said, let's have lunch. And we talked and I told her what I thought is the need for organizations that weren't yet at the age in terms of years of being in existence and the size in terms of finances to be able to afford someone in-house. And I was thinking of my organization at the time. My organization at the time, I think, was around a $7 million organization. But most of our operations are in Israel and in Jerusalem where our programs are being run. Our overhead here in New York, where I'm the ED, was only maybe around a half a million dollars. And if I'm being paid and I have a bookkeeper and a development associate and rent, you can see that there's no money there to hire a full-on general counsel. But there were legal needs. And so I realized that for these, I'll call them medium-sized organizations that may have operating budget in terms of their administration of only about a half a million, they can't afford to have a full-time attorney, but they have legal needs. And I recognized at that time in this meeting with this woman that there may be potential for even smaller organizations to have needs. And so it was through that she gave me the idea of looking at expanding and looking really specifically at the sector I was in. And so I literally went home and just Googled the sector to, to look at things. 
in and I found this fellowship opportunity. And I find that continuing education, not necessarily just legal education, but any kind of fellowship programs or for some people who are working in tax, thinking about doing either an LLM or a certification program can be helpful because it self-selects individuals in your sector and in that part of the sector that you're working in. And so for me, once I did that first fellowship, one of the women in my um, cluster group happened to be associated with the Center for Social Innovation. So it was through that that I learned about this other organization. It was really through recommendations of that peer group that I was finding of people working in my sector. I was lucky in that these conversations came into something, but I knew that there was a need and that I wanted to meet it. And it was just a matter of talking to people about my idea, people that were willing to sit down with me and share their experiences and some of the ideas that they had. And that was where, for me, my path really opened up in those relationships. So it was a combination of the networking and just showing up, you know, that initial step of me saying yes to when they asked me to speak at the alumni group, to having the initiative and the follow-through to actually meet the foreign trained attorney who was working in the sector I was interested in, that follow-up meeting, doing my own online research, and then just applying for programs and being accepted. I think for me, that was really, it made all the difference because I haven't had to do any advertising at all. That's fantastic. Not a lot of attorneys can say the same thing. And sort of some of the things for anyone who's who's looking to implement this, one, I think you've just provided a huge shortcut in looking at these certifications and kind of thinking about who you want to be in front of. Um, that's a really, really massive tip. And two, this is something that anyone can do. I mean, look, you know, we all have a phone in our pocket these days. It could be a matter of just looking at the kind of groups that, that you're interested in, just doing a simple Google search to get the ball rolling. And like you said, you happen to hit it pretty early in terms of a relationship that took off from you. But I'm sure if it wasn't going to work out with one of the ones that it did, that it was only a matter of time until you found one that stuck. Exactly. So I want to switch gears a little bit because we mentioned a little bit some of these for-profit social impact organizations. I try to stay pretty active in the startup space. This has been an exciting development in the last couple of years, um, especially in the venture-funded community, that these are sort of becoming to the fore. And I feel like there's a lot of legal issues that aren't properly being addressed through the traditional non-for-profit channels. Do you mind speaking a little bit about some of the challenges that this sector is facing particularly and how you've been able to help? I think that the social impact world is relatively new in how it's being looked at because there are now options for individuals forming organizations to think at the early stages about where they want to go in terms of, yes, we, we want to be a for-profit company, but we want to have social impact work. And then it's now part of you know what I consider the DNA of that organization when they make that early decision of what type of entity they want to be and what sorts of things and challenges they look at down the road. I don't know if it's helpful for me to share a little bit about benefit corporations for your listeners, but I, I'd, I'd love Absolutely. to talk about them. So benefit corporations are something that I've started to become really excited about because I see them as a middle pathway. You have a traditional corporation where uh, shareholders and the board of directors are working in a certain way. And the benefit corporation, in my mind, is a variant on that theme. It is a for-profit entity which can have shareholders, almost always will have a board of directors, but that is promising to at least consider other needs rather than just prioritizing and maximizing income. So let me be specific about this. When you become a benefit corporation here in the state of New York, you commit to putting together an annual report that's done by a third party, and that annual report will be shared with your board of directors, your shareholders. There may be a requirement that it be publicly available. You send a copy of it to the state 
And it doesn't give you a grade where you pass or fail. It doesn't necessarily give you a score where you're um, no longer able to be a benefit corporation if you don't hit certain metrics. But what it does is it's an evaluation done by a third party that holds the organization accountable to what they've promised to consider. So if you're doing an organization that is working to, for example, I have a client that is doing incredible work to uh, create an app that will promote inclusion. You can compare it to like a Yelp, except that the rankings are for certain subpopulations. So if you're a member of the LGBTQI community, you may want to know like what cities you're going to travel to, what hotels or restaurants are considered to be uh, friendly, open, and a place that are recommended within the community. If you're someone who has to be in a wheelchair and you need to know what spaces and in the cities that you're going to are going to be fully accessible to you, this app will help you find those solutions. So this is a for-profit venture that the Benefit Corporation is pursuing, but they are having other values that are involved. And by holding themselves out to the public in a way that says what those values are, having a third party take a look at um, how well they've fit with what their goals were and making that report public, public to the shareholders, public to the general public, and then available to the board of directors, it protects the leadership of that benefit corporation from only being liable for pursuing profits only. What it allows them to do is basically be a full human being and think about how their business decisions may affect society, labor, the physical environment, other considerations. And so I think it's a terrific tool. And I think that this is something that we'll probably see growing. And the legal needs are huge. You know, I have a client that approached me. She decided she's not ready yet and may never be to become an actual benefit corporation, which is the legal entity. She has a uh, limited liability company, but she recently looked into getting certified by a not-for-profit organization called BLA that actually provides certification if you meet certain criteria. But she needs to know that if she's going to go down this path of certification, what her legal obligations are to keep her certification up and what that impact will be on her organization in the short term and in the long term. And we had an initial conversation about her work, and I'm already thinking about you know the, the next couple months and how I'm going to best service her on several different projects that she'll need to do to stay in compliance. So in terms of the growth and getting into this area, I think it's huge. If anyone is interested and if you share contact information, I'm happy to make myself available to share some other information. I'm also a member of the Benefit Company Bar Association, and that's been a terrific resource for me. And that's where this woman and others have reached out to me because I'm on a list. And she was just literally Googling to find out what attorneys are working in this area, was able to find me. And um, that's where we were able to push forward with our relationship. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think in a lot of stuff in the business of growing, it's very important to select a place that, you know, obviously, if, if you're in a space that's going to be growing year over year massively, which it sounds like this is, there's just a lot more opportunity that's out there. And, you know, the flip side of that is you also have uh, comparatively fewer people who are actually able to service this well. So I, this could be a really, really interesting avenue for somebody who's thinking about using this kind of a strategy to grow their practice, because you could be one of a couple lawyers in your area that's doing this with more people that are joining every single year. And then it's also sort of a leg up to the people who've been kind of, you know, the traditional pro bono work or board president for non-for-profits. You know, if somebody's just starting out a practice or is a few years in, it's going to be tough to overcome that just based on merits alone. But if you happen to be in a category of one or a few, then it's a lot easier for people to go ahead and, you know, develop these relationships. Relationships that you could use to grow. I agree. 
It's fantastic to see what you've been able to do in the last couple of years. If anyone's taking notes on this, if we look at you know, only a few short years in, Elizabeth's at the place where she's not even concerned about doing outreach for this because she's got so much coming her way at this point. So that's kind of the end goal for anyone who might be pursuing this path. It seems like we've got some great tools and strategies for anyone who wants to go ahead and get started with that. Elizabeth, if anyone wants to contact you, what's the best way to find you online? What kind of people should reach out? What That sort of thing. The best way to find me is to directly connect with me is by email. So my email address is my first name, Elizabeth, spelled traditionally E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H at Good Counsel, and counsel is spelled C-O-U-N-S-E-L, Inc., I-N-C dot org. That is also our website, goodcounselinc.org. You can find out more about the work that we're doing, the people that I'm working with, our clients, and the people that are in our cohort program, which is a limited pro bono program that we run every six months. We also are growing, and this is something that I'm putting on my sort of to-do list for the summer, is to grow our social media. So I have been happy with the work we've done using Facebook, but we're now actually going to get into Instagram, which is something I never would have considered as an attorney as a place. But because we are starting to think about how to scale and be ready for it. One of the things that's on our project for the summer, I have an intern coming in to work on marketing, is to look at Instagram. But if you really want to contact me, I'm not on Instagram. Or, I mean, I may have a profile, but I don't use it. Email is that. So that's Elizabeth at goodcounselinc.org. So thank you so much for providing help for anyone who might be doing this. And uh, I think it's been a super valuable conversation. So uh, thanks again, Elizabeth. My pleasure. It was really terrific to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.